Welcome to the Academy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to sharing rich content for the purpose of spiritual growth. The Academy Podcast is brought to you by the Academy for Spiritual Formation, an international ministry of the Upper Room. The Academy is dedicated to creating safe space for people to connect with God, self, others, and creation for the sake of the world. To learn more about our five-day and two-year retreat offerings, visit academy.upperroom.org. I'm your host, Claire McKeever Burgett, and I serve as the Associate Director of the Academy. I'm also ordained clergy, a birth and postpartum doula, a yoga, dance, and movement instructor, a writer, a mother, a partner, a friend. We're glad you're here. In this month's episode, we hear from Roberta Bondi about God's unconditional love for all of us. The wisdom shared in the following episode draws from Roberta's teaching on discernment and ways of prayer at Two-Year Academy 25 in February 2007 at Camp Sumatanga Retreat Center. Roberta is a writer, speaker, teacher, and retreat leader. She is Professor Emerita of Church History at Candler School of Theology, Emory University. Roberta earned a bachelor's degree from Southern Methodist University and completed two years of study at Perkins School of Theology. She holds Master of Arts and Doctor of Philosophy degrees from Oxford University. A weaver and spinner who is interested in women's work with fiber through the ages, Roberta is the author of nine books and a longtime faculty member of the Academy for Spiritual Formation. She is married to Richard Bondi, a pastoral counselor, and they have two children and two grandchildren. The Bondies live in the North Georgia mountains and have a beloved Bichon Frise named Curly. Roberta's lifetime of studying the desert mothers and fathers of the early church lends itself to the wisdom you're about to hear, that the whole of the Christian spiritual life is about growing in the knowledge of God's love, and that we can't love others if we don't first know God loves us. Listen on, beloveds, and enjoy. Let's start with um, something from Dorotheus of Gaza. If you don't remember anything else, you have to remember Dorotheus is the sweetest father of the early church. Sixth century, uh, the head of a monastery, a huge monastery in Gaza, and he is... uh, um, He he grows up, he's grown up in that monastery since he was a a very young man, maybe a young teen, and went from just being a novice there to uh, being the head of the monastery. And then later on he had many adventures and founded another monastery that's irrelevant anyway. But uh, Dorotheus is steeped in this tradition and he quotes and comments on the, uh, um, the sayings all the time. So he is an embodiment of these sayings. So uh, anyway, Dorotheus, as the head of his monastery, uh, preached regular homilies to his community, which uh, some of which survive. Uh, actually, thousands of letters of his survive, but a, a fairly big chunk of homilies survive too. And uh, an amazing number of the homilies that, Philox- uh, that uh, uh, Dorotheus preaches to his monks are directed at the fact that they seem to spend a lot of time fighting. 
Now, if you think about it, this is a problem that, um, that religious communities have, including churches, not just monastic <laughs> communities. And that is when people live on top of each other, they get on each other's nerves, and uh, they let down their guard, and um, uh, the demons metaphorically come out, and, uh, and it can be pretty unpleasant. So it's not just Dorotheus who is having trouble uh, trying to deal with the monks who are fighting all the time. Um, uh, in any form of ministry, or teaching, you know, or any kind of community, Family life, you might have noticed it in family life. Um, you know, especially if you have kids and particularly if you have teenagers. Um, you know, this is, going, this is going to happen. Now, the implication of that is, of course, that it has to be dealt with, you know. Um, and that is part of, that is a big part of our job as Christians and human beings. Uh, in lay life or ministry or teaching or even retired. <laughs> okay. So anyway, one of these sermons, homilies, that Dorotheus is preaching, and he's got the same situation he always has. The monks are not only, um, they are not only fighting, but apparently they are saying uh, things to him like, well, I can't even love God if I've got these terrible brothers I have to live amongst. If I just didn't have these terrible people around me, I could love God. And that's why I joined the monastery, was so that I could grow in love of God. And uh, now some of you all may have heard that at various times from other people, maybe even from the most inmost uh, uh, parts of yourself that you'd rather not admit to. But... Um, Dorotheus replies and says, no, 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 no. You don't understand at all. You just can't, you're not understanding at all. There isn't any way that you can love God and not love your neighbor. So the question is, loving God and loving your neighbor. The question and the fact is that we are called to love God and love our neighbor. All things that are created have been created in such a way that they have their energy for life by the movement toward God. It's a movement toward God in love, toward God who is love. Does that make sense? I mean, that love is really not a force in reality. Love, in one sense, can be said to be reality. The fact is, though, that's not the way we mostly experience life not the life that we know, uh, because uh, of the fall. Whatever the cause of that fall is, um, there are, uh, you know, it's mythological language saying the world is not the way God intended. This is not what God intended in terms of uh, the way God creates all things and what God wants for all things. Now, Evagrius Ponicus, who we're going to look at in a day or two, uh, in the fourth, who's also a fourth century, one of the fathers of, from the sayings of the fathers, uh, he, he believed it was greed, uh, um, um, gluttony. Uh, and I mentioned that before, that, um, that he thought that the thing that got Adam and Eve in trouble, mythologically speaking, was uh, um, 
wanting variety. Uh, so they had everything to eat in the world in the Garden of Eden except the fruit off of one tree. And they said, we want that fruit. This isn't enough. And that, that's what got, got them into trouble. Uh, them meaning us, because the mythological language is, Dorotheus is particularly nice and explicit about that. When we're talking about Adam and Eve, we're talking about us. You know, we're not talking about some event that once happened that, that we're just sort of the hapless victims of, uh, but that we perpetuate. Uh, so um, desire for variety, or what we would call consumerism, is, is at the root of uh, what gets human beings uh, in trouble. And other options are listed. Dorotheus, um, he has a wonderful account of uh, what went wrong at the fall. And again, it's in, the, it's in the context of him talking to his monks who were fighting, as usual. And it's another, whatever the topic of his homilies, it always comes back to this one, you know, which is stop fighting. You know, you, you, you need to not fight. So Dorotheus has a wonderful account of the fall as he tells it. He says, uh, okay, God created Adam and Eve, put them in the garden, gave them all these good stuff to eat, and, um, and then um, they ate the apple. Now, he is not interested in the eating of the apple. He seems to think that where the primary thing that caused, caused and continues to cause all the trouble in the world is what happened after the apple was eaten, and that is that God appeared um, and said to, to uh, Adam, um, okay, I, I told you not to do this. How come you did this? And Adam says, well, it's not my fault. I, you know, it's, it's her fault. And, and furthermore, you're the one who gave her to me. <laughs> and Eve, then God says to Eve, okay, how come you ate the fruit? And she says, well, it's not my fault. It was the serpent's fault. He's the one who tempted me. Uh, again, with the implication, you made the serpent. You know, you deal with it. <laughs> you know. uh, now, Dor that is where the first sin lies that Dorothea says in the interest in, that he says, then takes over human reality. And the sin is to break all of our relationships by blaming everybody around us and not taking responsibility for our own actions in such a way that we, uh, we preserve our relationships. But our, that we just kind of vacate the scene by saying it's not my fault. But the important thing here is that love is broken. That fundamental thing is... is um, uh, I can't help it. It's not my fault. It's her fault. And furthermore, it's your fault, God. You put me here. You know, I wouldn't have chosen this. You know, I, I never asked for this. Here I am. You put me here. But the fact of the brokenness of life is important, really super important, to acknowledge that when we talk about the love of God. And here is the reason. The reason is this. In our natural state, we are 
as God created us with the fully functioning image of God, we are drawn toward God in love. It's easy to love God in our natural state, not our broken state, our wounded state. In our wounded state, however, this is something that the movement toward God, the urge toward God is always in us. It's, it's never completely lost because the image of God is never completely lost or eradicated. Uh, it's, it's down there under there, uh, but it's, it has become something that's not easy to do. Now, the freeing insight here is that it's not easy to love God where we start off. And it may not be easy to love God for a good part of our Christian journey. Now, that sounds like bad news, but this is good news. Uh, this, we're talk, going back to the notion of Christian perfection we were talking about yesterday and the fact that uh, Christian perfection, perfection in love is the goal of the Christian life. You'll notice that the flip side of that is to take seriously the notion that Loving is something we have to learn how to do. Now, if we lived in a world without any sort of brokenness, we might not have to do that. We wouldn't have to do that. But we do live in a broken world. So we have to learn how to love God and learn how to love our neighbor. And that may very well take an entire lifetime. And this is good news and not bad news. The reason it is good news is because so many people get tripped up on this, including a whole host of my students over the years have been tripped up on this, that the idea that from the day you become a Christian, you love God and you love everybody. And churches are tied up in knots over this. Christians love everybody. Uh, Christians love God. Uh, and then everybody proceeds to act very clearly as though they don't love God and they don't love each other. Uh, and maybe they don't even have a clue what's going on. Because the pressure to acknowledge that you love God and you love the neighbor is so strong that it creates what we have a problem with in almost all our churches, and that is hypocrisy. You know, nobody wants to make it clear. You know, nobody wants to admit they may not love God and love their neighbors. For that matter, in our churches, we're, we're better than we used to be, but we still have trouble um, not wanting to let our bad sides be visible in church. Now, of course, the awful thing is, is they're visible even if we don't want them to be. Uh, so we're just kind of fooling ourselves. But the pressure to say, okay, I'm a Christian, I love God, is, is still on us. We are wounded, and that language of woundedness is really important. You might write that down in capital letters and then put a box around it and stars and stuff like that. They will talk about sin, and they take sin seriously, but when it comes to growing in love of God and neighbor, really growing, they talk more in terms of the passions and the passions are what I told you Anthony calls the great wound. We're going to talk about the passions later. Let's just say now that to think of the passions as our wounded parts out of which we act and make our decisions. And we'll, we'll, get, we'll talk more about that later. So at any rate, this being all this being the case, 
it is hard for most of us to love God. Not maybe to love our idea of God or our picture of God that we got in Sunday school, but really God. It's hard for us to learn how to do that because most of us don't know God. We know God in part, but we don't really know a lot about God, up close and personal, so to speak. Because when we, um, you know, in my case, I didn't want to get close enough to God to find out because I just assumed I get close to God, God's going to hurt me. God's always hurting me anyway. I don't want to get closer. But, you know, I suspect there are a lot of people here who have trouble with trusting God um, because your experience is reality is not trustworthy. And however you think reality is, reality you, you know is a reflection of God. If your experience of reality is untrustworthy, you're not very likely to think that God is trustworthy unless you're doing a number on yourself, which a lot of us do, maybe all of us do. Okay. So what we want to do is to know who God really is. We want to know who God really is. We want to grow in the kind of up-close, personal experience of God that lets us know that underneath all things is love, and that in God's reality, we are loved and that we are loved beyond measure and that the terrible things that happen in life really do happen, but underneath all of that is the love of God. We have to increasingly grow into that knowledge of how God loves us in order to be able to love God. So the first step toward all this and the last step and the in-between steps, all of them, for our whole life is to learn who God is, who is above all, first and last and all in the middle, is love and unconditional love in the way that we never got it from our parents and the way we never give it because we're limited and mortal. It's not because we're bad people. It's because we're limited and mortal. But God is not limited. God is not mortal. And God loves us so extravagantly that as we grow into that, we really do grow into the, the power also to love other people. Okay, so we start with, with that. I want to ask you this uh, to reflect on. What is it in yourself your own wounds or your own uh, trouble with your vision that, that keeps you from really believing that God does not love us in spite of who we are, that God loves us extravagantly. What is it in you that keeps you from understanding God's love in that way so that you can love God in return and be suited then and able to love other people.
Roberta asks us a compelling question. What is it in you that keeps you from understanding God's love? Nagira Wahid's short poem comes to mind. What about this theory? The fear of not being enough and the fear of being too much are exactly the same fear. The fear of being you. In response to Roberta's question in Nagira's poem and God's love, I offer another poem I wrote in response to my own journey with God, my own journey with love. You are a human being with flesh and bone, body and breath, smiles and sighs, expectations and dreams, thoughts and feelings, movements and masks, questions and sadness. You are not a puzzle to be solved, a series of data to be sorted. You are a human being to be loved. At every turn on this journey, ask yourself, what is the most loving thing I can do for myself right now? Sometimes it will be nothing at all. Other times it will be everything. Sit with yourself. Be still with yourself. You are a human being. You are love. To hear more from faculty like Roberta, who are spiritual directors, pastors, professors, authors, and experienced pilgrims and practitioners in the area of spiritual formation, join us at the next five-day or two-year academy. For more information, visit academy.upperroom.org.